0: joke. I was going to joke that he left again, but, but he uh, took the opportunity away from me. Um, no, thank you for that introduction. We really are um, excited to be partnering with you guys and to planet a church. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we, would, we would not want to do it with, with uh, a different group of people. So yeah, well, um, I remember uh, September 11, 2001, Aaron and I were in our little apartment in China. And our team got a knock on the door in the middle of the night, and it was a, a drunk uh, European student, and he was saying, the United States is under attack, the United States is under attack. And then he said, I'm going to go upstairs and go tell everyone else. And the problem was, we were on the top floor. And so, as he kind of disappears up this ladder, you know, into the roof, we thought, this, this, isn't, this isn't real, this isn't happening, and we... we went about our business. And we woke up the next morning, and you can imagine, those of you, you know, we we all remember the horror. And for us, it was just on a TV screen because we were overseas. But you can imagine um, us thinking, this is real. This is is happening. And a lot of suffering happened that day. And I didn't really, uh, when when I knew I was going to be preaching, I didn't really set out to do a September 11th sort of sermon. But you know, uh, the staff and the elders, the deacons, we pray for all you guys in the church. We pray for you guys. And, And as we're Praying and talking, we're realizing there's there's a lot of of, of pain there's a lot of suffering going on, and um, these are the things that we lift you guys up for, and we thought you know this um, this is one of the hardest things to wrestle with in scripture. you know we can say things if you ask some a christian how do you how do you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? We can answer that it 's by grace through faith alone, you ask somebody, why do we suffer and there 's kind of this I don't know. And as you grow in your faith and you mature and you ask someone, a mature believer, that question, you kind of get the same answer. I, I don't know. And so it's one of these things we wrestle with. Does God care? Why does He appoint suffering in our lives? Why does He appoint it at this time? Does He care? Does He see me? And uh, as, as our family has spent the last 17 years in ministry in different situations, in different countries, you know, as we engage people in the gospel of Jesus, This is the number one question, the number one barrier. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but hey, what about this problem of evil and suffering in the world? And the way they typically frame it is this, and you may have heard this before. The problem of evil and suffering goes like this. It says, if God were all-powerful, he would stop evil and suffering in the world. Now, if God were all-good and all-loving he would want to stop evil and suffering in the world. There is evil and suffering in the world. Therefore, an all-powerful, all-good God, like the one in Christian theism, the one these Christians keep talking about, must not exist. That's kind of how it's typically framed. And we can do, do a couple of things. We can just dismiss this and say, you know, this is just a problem for non-believers. This is a problem for people that don't know God, haven't read their Bibles, don't know Jesus, We can't really do that, can we, because I'll bet you if you're like me, at some of the points of greatest suffering in life, you have thought this very same thing. said, God, I'm your child. Why is this happening to me? I've been baptized into your covenant family. Why is this happening to me? And sometimes we say, God, you must not be all loving. You must not be all powerful. Sometimes we see it in others' lives. Sometimes we we look across the aisles, we look across our our streets, and we say, God, this this is why is this happening? And not to me, but to someone I care about. You must not be all powerful, you must not be all-loving, you must not exist. And we may not verbalize it like that, but but sometimes we do. And so here's my hope this morning. I don't want to give us answers. That would that would be wrong, something we can just stick on a t-shirt, a bumper sticker, something like that. I want to give us answers, but, but here's what happens to us sometimes, is sometimes we, we bind up our hearts, and we want to approach God in prayer, we want to dive into his word, we want to minister to other people, but our hearts are so bound up with this issue of suffering that we just can't, we can't connect with him. Scripture falls flat, our prayers fall flat, and so I don't want to try to give us answers, but I want us to do is to kind of loosen up our hearts in this area of suffering, as we reach up to God. And as we reach out to our friends and neighbors, what I want to do is kind of help us, again, not have answers to just spew out, but to, to, to sort of loosen their hearts and say, what if? Listen, I don't understand this God. I, don't, I, don't, I may not understand this, but, but what if I can take faltering steps towards this God and say, okay, I'm listening. You have my attention. I'm listening. So that's my hope this morning. I want us to be able to turn to God for comfort and peace, even when we might not have all the answers. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we read your word and we we uh, we don't come up with, with answers. We come up with with an invitation, an invitation to draw in, to listen, to know you, to know the God who is all-powerful and all-loving and is so different than us, and yet came down to us to suffer with us, for us. So God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we dive into this hard subject. I pray that we would see you and you only. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first truth that I want to share is that God is in control. God is in control, and when you hear that, you may get a sigh of relief, uh, but you may want to just shake your fist at God and be angry. So you're in control. Well, then what's the deal with all this? And you know what? That's good. That's that's an okay place to be at because at least when we do that, we believe that God's in control of our suffering. We're shaking our fist at the right person because we can't believe the awful lie that, that Satan is in control of our suffering. Circumstances are in control. The world is in control. I am in control. Fate We can't believe that. No, God is in control of our suffering, and he's appointed it for this very time in our lives. He's allowed it to happen at this very time. Now listen to what scripture says. Uh, A book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2 and 3, says this, Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now why why do we this book was almost left out of the Bible because it's so pessimistic? Like, how can you read this and, and put this in the Bible? Isn't it, isn't it supposed to be positive encouraging? You know, it's the, the radio station that oh, all positive encouraging. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sometimes uh we get this. But but here's what's going on. so um why why would it say that everything is meaningless, our labor, everything to just like our lives. Two layers are going on here. And when you, when you understand this, you'll see this for the first time. It makes Ecclesiastes this kind of aha moment. There's two layers going on, life under the sun and life under heaven. And so as you read Ecclesiastes, you, you see the teacher, he goes, okay, life under the sun, life under heaven. And actually, most of the book is life under the sun. But three times in this book, he uses the phrase life under heaven. And those are the most encouraging times in the book, but they're also some of the most strange and mysterious. And so one of those times in, 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 uh, that he says life under heaven is chapter 3. So this is life under the sun, life under, under heaven, chapter 3. He says this, he starts to list events that happen in our lives. He says this, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. All these things, certainly it's not comprehensive, but it is, it is a lot of the things that we go through in the course of human life. Now verse 11 goes on to say this. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. A time for each one of these things. And it says, he makes all things beautiful in their time. He makes. That's active. That's intentional. When you make something, you have control over it. You fashion it. When you make something, you fashion it according to your control, your design, your purpose. And in scripture it says he makes all things beautiful, but he does it at different times. It's God who does it. It's not just these events running their course. Sometimes we see the beauty now. Sometimes we have to wait for it. It's time. And we like to say, you know, life is always good. Death is always bad. Rejoicing is always good. Mourning is always bad. Building the twin towers was good. Tearing them down was bad. But we can never say we can never say they're meaningless. We can never say they're in vain. That's life under the sun. That, that, that's life from our down here perspective, is that they're meaningless, and they just happen. No, under heaven, there's a time, there's a purpose. God will make each one of them beautiful. See, his power is not in that he stops each one of those bad things. His power is that he makes it into something good in his own time. Now, in 1950, Pete Seeger wrote a song called Turn, 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 which was covered by the Birds a uh, band in, in 1965. Some of you more seasoned members probably have this vinyl in your basement. Um, I'm not going to point you out, but you know who you are, Gary. Um, but you know what Wikipedia says about this song, Turn, Turn, Turn? It says this, that that great treasure house of human knowledge, Wikipedia, says... Turn, turn, turn was taken word for word from Ecclesiastes 3. That's what it says, is it? It's not. What does it add? Turn, 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 right? So it, it, it goes through Ecclesiastes 3 and it says turn, 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 but it's not turn, 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 is it? That's life under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3 is in life under heaven. Turn, turn, turn ascribes this meaningless, cyclical fate. To those circumstances, there's a good thing, there's a bad thing. Turn, 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 the world spins. What are you going to do? That's not word for word. That's not life under heaven. That's not life from God's perspective. It's not turn, turn, turn. Militant atheist Richard Dawkins says this. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Is that all there is to our suffering? Turn, 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 pitiless indifference, brute nature? No, in Ecclesiastes 3, we're in life under heaven. And these things happen. Why? Because... It's time. It's his time. He is making them, working, crafting these things into something beautiful. God is in control, not the spinning earth. Okay, we've seen the scripture, we've heard it. Granted, you say, okay, God is in control and makes my suffering beautiful in his own time, but his timing stinks. (laughs) <laughs> and that's that's okay, right? We can say that sometimes a time to give birth and a time to die are moments apart. Why? We kind of hear dumb answers. Well, God wanted him or her in heaven with him. That's not an answer. That's like Cole and Kay pulling on a toy. Mine, I want it. I want it. No, I want it. That's That kind of falls flat, isn't it? We don't get these answers like that, but we, well, we know this. God is making all things beautiful in its time, according to his plan, according to his time, and he will do it. And Ecclesiastes also says this. It says that we long for eternity now, but we don't get it. We're in this life under the sun, but we long for eternity. We long for life under heaven. But the one thing God does let us in on is he's appointing all these things at a certain time, and he's making them beautiful. And in John chapter 11, we meet some other people who are kind of questioning God's timing. John 11, 1, 6 says this. He says, now a certain man was sick. It says ill, but ill is kind of this nice British sort of, oh, he's ill. So I changed it to sick. That's probably not okay when you're preaching to change scripture, but... Um, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is sick. He has a terminal illness. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Then it says this, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Read it again in case we missed it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, suffering, dying, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now that little word translated so for us in English kind of means cause and effect, But it's interesting, in the original language, it's kind of this soft contrast. that contrasts two things and creates a little bit of curiosity. Here's how the message translates it. It says, oddly enough. And I love that. When I read it, I'm like, okay, this is great. So let's read it again in the message. It says, now Jesus loved this family, and oddly enough, he waited. That's what we read, right? We read, oddly enough, why is he waiting? Our God waits reserved, purposeful, but in control. He waits for Lazarus, sick, suffering. This wasn't a quick thing. Sick and suffering, our Lord and Savior waits. He doesn't come. He doesn't heal. He lets Lazarus' terminal illness take its course. And I know that hits hard for some of us in this room. Why? If we're looking at it from life under the sun, we say, okay, he didn't love Lazarus. No, the text doesn't allow that looking at it from life under the sun perspective says, well maybe he's not able maybe he can't control the timing of this thing no the text doesn't allow that it says he waited so the problem with this problem of evil and suffering as man as us we typically frame it and lay it out in its perfect little order is that it suffers from what i've come to call the, the problem of the phantom premise and here's what I mean. There's something unwritten before you start that little syllogism of why there's suffering and evil in the world. This phantom present, uh, premise that's wrong. Here's what I mean. When I was about eight years old, I, I baked a cake for my mom for Mother's Day. It had a cookbook, and it laid out all the steps. Logical, simple, measured, proven, right? Thousands of people since Betty Crocker was born have made this same cake in this same order. And it's turned out great. They have pictures of it to prove it right alongside the recipe. And the picture was this dark, rich, chocolatey cake. Two cups flour, two cups white sugar, half a cup cocoa. It's simple, right? So I remember my mom taking a bite of this cake, and I can just hear these like hot chocolate crystals just grinding in her teeth. And she eats this pale, tan-colored cake. <laughs> Well, what did I do wrong? My, my middle school boys in this room are like nothing. <laughs> hot chocolate is great. I used hot cocoa packets instead of baking cocoa, right? See, the, the, I followed the recipe. The ingredients were foolproof. But here's my unwritten premise in my head: was, hey, cocoa is cocoa. It doesn't matter. And so no matter what I did, they could have changed the recipe. They could have said one cup flour, one cup sugar, half cup cocoa. I still would have come up with a pale and distasteful conclusion. Because I would have said well, all cocoa was created equal. Apparently not. Hot cocoa only dissolves in water and not cake. But I sabotaged myself before I even started the recipe. Now, here's what we do. What's the phantom premise with the problem of suffering and evil? It's this. Suffering and evil are meant to harm us and can never serve any other purpose. That's our unwritten rule, isn't it? So plug the rest in. Suffering and evil are meant to harm us and can never serve any other purpose. Therefore, if God was all-powerful, he could stop it. If he was all-loving, he would stop it. He doesn't. So he must be weak, indifferent, or he doesn't exist. And we will pop out with that conclusion, that pale, distasteful conclusion every time. But what if this? What if he didn't want to stop suffering and evil just yet? What if that wasn't what was best and most loving for the human race? What if our suffering actually had a purpose in God's time to be made into something beautiful? What if our suffering makes us more and more like our suffering God who suffered on our behalf? What if? What if, our, what if our suffering accomplishes something unseen? Then our conclusion, what pops out, is gratitude and praise. And I know we don't have to be there yet. We pop out with a different conclusion, don't we? And in Revelation, it's interesting, the last book of the Bible, we get to tear things back and we get to see from life under the sun, we get to see life under heaven. And what do we see? We don't see people... Being, who are martyred and suffering, we don't see them shaking their hands at God and saying, why? I hate you. We see holy, 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 worthy is the one who is slain. That's what we see. And we're asked to see the unseen. We're asked to trust that and say, okay, maybe this doesn't always harm us. Maybe there is something beautiful going on. Why God doesn't stop it? So the Bible says God is sovereign over it. He's not the author of it. He's sovereign over it. So why does he wait? By verse 14, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has died. And this is what it says. Jesus told them plainly. He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so you may believe. Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary. When Jesus comes into town... Mary's too angry to come out. Martha runs straight to Jesus. And what does she say? She says, if you would have been here, you could have stopped it. It's good. What does that show about her? It shows that she knows her God. She knows we blame the one in control, right? Something bad happens. We blame whoever's in control. It's not always just passing the buck. Sometimes it's true. You blame the one who's in control. And she blames Jesus. She's right on. She knows who's in control. But, but something's going on in her life. It might be that phantom premise here. Jesus, if only you would have been here, what? Would he have stopped it? Or does he have some other purpose? He could have stopped it. She's right. But remember what he says. He says, I, I didn't stop it so that people would believe. He waits because death for Lazarus means life for the crowd, for Mary, for Martha, for the disciples. The death of Lazarus brought about because the fall of mankind, the fall of man, sin entering into the world, ruining things, his death results in life for many people. doesn't make it easy. It's not an answer. But it's there. And so he invites Martha to say, don't, Just look at the seen, look at the unseen. And that's hard to do. There's mourning and wailing going on in the background. He's saying, Don't don't listen to that. Keep your eyes on me. That's hard. That's hard to do. He counters Mary in verse 32. First words out of her mouth You could have stopped us, Jesus. He could have, but he didn't. So, the first truth that we have to believe about our pain and suffering in our lives is that God is in control. God is in control. In verse 35, we see our second thing we have to believe from Scripture about our pain and suffering, and that's that Jesus weeps. God is in control. Jesus weeps with us. Now, wait a minute. You think, okay, if Jesus is weeping in verse 35, isn't that contradictory with the fact that he's purposeful and in control and has a plan and he's making it beautiful? If you're going to make something beautiful, you know the end. Why are you crying? And the crowds interpret that as he's out of control. And I know in my own life, um, some things that I've gone through, when I, when I was in counseling, my counselor would always ask me when I would be sharing some of these things from my past that were traumatic and painful, he would say, where is Jesus right now? And my answer would always be, he's over there. See, Jesus isn't over there. He's not up there. He's in the midst of the mourning crowds, weeping, wailing, and he himself is weeping. Author and pastor Brian Chapel says that Jesus weeps not because he doesn't know what will happen, but because he knows what has happened. He knows why there is death and suffering in his father's world that was created good without all these things. He knows how things should be, and it breaks his heart that this world is fallen, and now there's suffering and death, and he has to raise his friend from the dead. The crowds interpret that, that he can't, he can't help anything, he can't do anything. You open a, an, a blind man's eyes. Can't? Can't you raise this man? It's not can't. It, it's his timing. He has a purpose, a reason. But he doesn't just stand there, he weeps. He doesn't weep because he can't raise Lazarus from the dead. He, he weeps because his creation is weeping. Those he loves are weeping. He weeps because it's come to this. I've got to raise one of my friends from the dead. And Jesus, of all people, knows how life should be. A lot of times we ask for a why for suffering, and we get a who. We, get a, we, we want why. Why is this happening? We get a who. I weep with you. I'm with you. I am with you. I am in control, and I am weeping with you. And it kind of takes away the option for us as Christians to just meet suffering with this kind of pasted on smile and say, oh, it's okay, Jesus, you know, it's all right. This takes away that option. It's not okay, but it will be okay. But it's not okay now. And so the God is in control part, that kind of helps us know, okay, it will be okay, but that doesn't really help me sometimes right now Jesus weeping with us helps me know it's not okay, but it will be. And in the now, I have a Savior who understands that. Sometimes we think not weeping over suffering is is a badge of spiritual maturity. Stoic spirituality is never Jesus' response to our pain. We don't weep less and less as we grow closer to glory. We weep more and more. As we get closer to glory, because we realize our own brokenness. We realize the brokenness of the world. So, the goal is not to weep less somehow. We're told in heaven there'll be no more weeping. and That really means nothing unless I weep now and I'm longing for something different. Jesus wept. God is in control. Jesus weeps. And as we look at this passage more, we come to our third and our final point our suffering is for a purpose. That's not meant to be a cliche. But it's true. God is in control. Jesus weeps with us and our suffering is for a purpose. Remember when Jesus first found out that Lazarus was sick and dying. He said this. He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's not just meaningless. He says he's glad that he allowed it to happen because Lazarus' death will result in eternal life for many. Jesus let Lazarus suffer for a purpose. So there's this belief part, but he also mentions glory. How does this suffering bring about God's glory? What does it mean to glorify something? To glorify something means to, bring, to reveal something, to bring something more clearly into view, to represent something or someone as admirable and worthy. So when Jesus is saying that our suffering is for the glory of God, that's a serious thing. What he's doing is he's he's making suffering a very high calling. To reveal and glorify a suffering God. That's what we're doing. It's not meaningless. It's not vanity. It's a high and meaningful calling when we suffer. We're reflecting something. We're bringing something into view. We're glorifying. The only thing in the universe worthy of worship So we're revealing, bringing this God clearer into view for ourselves and for others. And he says that 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 unseen thing that's going on is better and more glorious than what you are seeing at the moment. Now listen to how Paul does this. Paul in scripture links glory and suffering, glory and suffering. Peter does it in his letters, Paul does it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says this. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not into the things that are seen, but into the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, Paul is not saying that light and momentary is easy, he doesn't say being renewed day by day is easy. It's about me wasting away. That's not light. That's not momentary. That's not easy. He's not sweeping this away under some rug of spirituality and spiritualizing the whole thing. He's not doing that. Light and momentary for Paul was decade after decade of beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, starvation, attempted assassination, and it only ended when his head was cut off. That's light and momentary for Paul. So don't hear that he's trivializing suffering. How can he call it light and momentary? Because here's what he does he takes his lifelong, horrible suffering, he puts it on one side of a scale, and on the other side of a scale, he puts endless, eternal, age after age, day after day, glory with God. That's the only way he can call it light and momentary. See, if our days under the sun are filled with suffering, if each day is a pound and we suffer a lifelong, we have a hundred pounds of suffering we're carrying around. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? And that's on one side of the scale. But on the other side of the scale is day after day, age after age of glory, of glory a weight that can never be counted. Because it goes on and on and on and on. And so for Paul, that makes what's on this side of the scale, that hundred pounds of suffering, seem light and momentary in comparison to the endless weight of glory. So what makes suffering so hard is that it seems meaningless because what we're getting is unseen. We can't always see it, we can't always feel it, but we have to see it with eyes of faith, and that's hard. That's hard. We have to see that verse 17 is coming. There's a promise there. And here's also what it says. It would be great if if, if that was just at the end. If that glory was just at the end and he said, okay, you're going to suffer for 90 years, 100 years, whatever it is, you're going to suffer. And at the end, there's meaningless suffering your whole life. And at the end of that, there's glory. That would kind of be enough, wouldn't it? We'd say, okay, well... I'm suffering now, but at the end I get glory. But it doesn't say that. It says in the end there will be glory, but also says this, right now, right at this moment, there are eternal things going on in our suffering. Paul says that our affliction is preparing something. Now, preparing means right now, doesn't it? Preparing means something going on in the background, something unseen. There's preparation going on. The preparation is now. So there's a future element of this glory, but there's also now. He's preparing something. John Piper once said this. He said, Every millisecond of our pain from fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of our misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that we will get because of that. And we can taste it now by faith while it's unseen. By faith we can know that no believer's suffering is ever meaningless. And he ends chapter 8, with kind of this this uh, this famous, he compares he compares suffering with childbirth. Now, why does he do that? There's a lot of pain out there. Why does he compare suffering with childbirth? And after running three marathons, sometimes I kind of roll my eyes when when people do some stuff and they're like, "Oh, I felt like I ran a marathon." It's like, really? You felt like you just had like four hours of like your body eating itself for energy? Like really? But you know what's even worse is the guy like me who who sometimes is like, Oh, I feel like I'm just given birth. So Aaron like just grabs me and slams me up against the wall and says, You have no idea. No, she would never do that. She's very gracious. Why does he say childbirth childbirth is intense pain, so I've heard. There's a lot of kinds of intense pain in your life, isn't it? Lots of different kinds of intense pain. But childbirth is one of the intense pains that at the end of it, you know something beautiful is going to happen. Something joyful is going to happen. And even this, while you're in the midst of it, you know that you are producing something beautiful. So Paul compares our suffering, our pain, to the pains of childbirth. He says we groan. We groan in this, but we don't groan without hope. He says we groan as in the pains of childbirth. Remember, Jesus weeps with us. It's not that we groan now and and we're just on our own. He's with us in this, but he's in control. But he says we groan as in the pains of childbirth. So we groan with a hope. We groan that there's something being prepared. And produced joy and beauty. And he ends Romans 8 with this. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's kind of become so common, we just gloss over it. But what's the purpose of our suffering? For Lazarus, it was to bring many to belief. It was to bring glory to God. For Jesus, it was an inheritance of eternal glory, the redemption of mankind, the payment of our sins. For Job... He never gets that answer. He never knows why. We're not told. But for all who love God, we know that the purpose of our suffering, along with our Lord, is some peculiar, weighty glory that we don't quite understand if we see it with eyes of faith. Now, if the point of the Christian life is just getting saved, being happy, getting your ticket punched to heaven, then suffering doesn't make much sense, does it? But see, if we're on a trajectory to glory to reflecting more and more the radiance of Christ now and forevermore, then suffering starts to take on a whole new meaning because Jesus, who was glorified, suffered on his way to glory, didn't he? And his glory is ours as we join with Jesus in living out the hard part of his life to get the good part of his life for all eternity. We don't get a lot of answers. We get an invitation, an invitation to trust the one who suffered on our behalf, and is even now, even now, preparing an eternal weight of glory as he weeps with us at each appointed time of suffering in our lives. These few verses are not the end of what scripture says. It's full of tying the suffering to our glory, telling us that God is present, that God is in control. Our suffering may not, probably won't make sense no matter how close we get to God, but Please, we have to know this as Christians. We have to know that God is in control, that Jesus weeps with us, and that our suffering will always have a purpose, his purpose. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here in life under the sun that we don't understand. We have eternity in our hearts. Lord, you put it there. You created this longing for something more, for something different We praise you for your word that allows us to peel back this seemingly hopeless and endless life under the sun, Lord. You peel that back and you let us know that you are making, you are working, you are planning, you are preparing. Father, we thank you that of all the religions out there, Father, that we could put our hope in. We believe in a God who suffered we believe in a God who suffered on the way to glory and who allows us, even now in the pains of childbirth, to share in that glory as we suffer with you. Father, give us the strength. Give us the strength to reach up to you even when we don't want to. Give us the strength and the faith to reach out to one another, to our friends and our neighbors, Father. Would you take us through these times of suffering? Stay close as we weep with you and suffer with you. But Thank you that you have not left us alone, that you are in control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.